Welcome to the first episode of the Historical Materialism Podcast, HM for short. I'm Ashok Kumar. And I'm Lucas Lothus. What we're trying to do with this podcast is a kind of long-form, deep-dive analysis into a particular area of Marxist thinking based around the Historical Materialism Journal. The idea is to go beyond sort of bite-sized explainers and take as long as we need to do the task of introducing and demystifying a particular Marxist theory and debate, but also try to get into the kind of granular detail of a specific intervention by sitting down with contributors and critics in the latest HM journal. We'll also try and make the article or articles we discuss open access. Uh, and we'll be doing at least one podcast for every new issue of the journal, which is quarterly. Uh, for our introductory podcast, our guests include three journal editorial board members, alongside one of the contributors to the Political Marxism Symposium in issue 29.3, which is what we're looking at today. So would you guys like to introduce yourselves? I'm Rob Knox, and I'm a member of the HM Editorial Boards. Hi, I'm uh, Maya Pau, and I'm also a member of the Editorial Board and uh, set up, I guess, the symposium. Hi, I'm Svenja Bromberg, and I'm also a member of the Editorial Board of HM. Uh, hi, I'm Javier moreno Zacares, and I contributed to the symposium. Thanks. Um, since some listeners might not know what historical materialism, the institution, is, uh, Svenja, can you give us a little bit of a, a history of HM, what it is, what it does? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a difficult task. It's become a big, <laughs> big project um, over the years. Um, for many of the listeners, probably, I don't even need to introduce HM and they've probably interacted with it in one or another ways. Um, I'm myself um, a rather recent member of the editorial board, um, but I'll try my best. And if Rob or Maya want to add something, please do. Um, so I think HM is firstly, but by no means only an academic journal. It started in 1997 um, and is now published um, four times a year in print and online through Brill. Um, and incidentally, I was looking back at the first issue and actually Alan Mikesenswood and Ben Oteschke were both uh, published in the very first issue. So our conversation today goes back in a way to the roots um, of the journal. Um, the journal has an editorial board with currently 19 members, as well as a corresponding editorial board with um, far more. Um, and um, as an academic journal, I would say it's quite a special place because uh, we have monthly, um, sometimes heated intellectual and uh, political debates about all the issues. Um, and so these debates are really um, the core work uh, that we do at the journal. Um, but again, HM is more than the journal. Um, I, for example, was introduced to HM, I think, firstly through the London conference, uh, meeting our kind of HM community there. Um, there's a yearly London conference. There are now um, yearly or regular conferences around the globe, and that is uh, part of uh, the work of um, HM. Then there's a book series that is published um, by Brill and Haymarket, um, where um, the book series publishes new scholarship as well as 
um, classical or important um, uh, um, translations uh, into English of, of key Marxist scholarship. Um, and finally, there's a website uh, with a lively blog. There are global event announcements. Um, so in general, um, um, the, the website is also a kind of place for Marxist debate. So political Marxism was and is an attempt to challenge a perceived structuralist bias in Marxist accounts of history, which focus on the logic of capitalism, uh, abstracted from specific historical events and the social agents which, uh, or who bring about social change. So political Marxism focuses on the historical break that led to the transition from feudalism to capitalism, explaining how this transition happened in England first without taking place in other countries with a similar set of structural conditions. So Robert Brenner shows how historical events and contextual specificity lead to different modes of production in Western and Eastern Europe. So in Western Europe led to capitalism, in Eastern Europe led to serfdom, despite similar processes of intensification of commerce and trade. So Brenner and political Marxists more generally focus on class struggle as central rather than kind of axiomatic ideas of how capitalism behaves. And by emphasizing historical context and the importance of what they call social property relations, along with the ways class struggles take place in different locations, um, Brenner's key point was to show that the peculiar legal form of the enclosures in England replaced subsistence farming with market-based farming, allowing landlords to pit peasants against each other through competition over access to leaseholds on the land. So this enclosure system exposed peasants to dispossession if they were unable to um, adapt to constantly rising rents and thereby uh, profit became the condition of their social reproduction. And this squeezed out the less productive uh, and less successful peasants and rewarded the more productive and more successful peasants. So by creating a market for land and a market for labor, landlords could hire peasants as wage laborers and were pressured to invest in labor-saving technology and capital-saving technologies in order to maintain their profits because of this increasing competition. And this led to um, increasing market dependence and therefore marks the beginning of capitalism, according to the political Marxists. So in short, the particular balance of forces between classes in England is what led to the emergence of capitalism and didn't lead to the emergence of capitalism at the same time in, for, ex for example, France, which had otherwise similar um, levels of uh, development of, cap of the economic system. So both lords and peasants become dependent on the market, and this then highlights the political Marxists use this to highlight the importance of political struggle, class struggle, um, and the particular political constitution of labor um, as absolutely central to understanding capitalism. So the legal form under which uh, labor is um, exploited becomes really important. Um, and so it's a political, political Marxism because it uh, really emphasizes the importance of political conflict and struggle um, along class lines um, and how that plays a role in the emergence of capitalism. 
Great, thanks Lucas and Ashok. It's it's really fun to be here and I'm really glad to be launching this podcast, which hopefully is going to introduce a new era and a really launch HM into the 21st century properly. So uh, I'm really excited about this. And I'm also obviously really excited to be talking about the symposium, which has basically been two years in the making now. Um, you know, it's been something we've been discussing a while and there was a panel at the 2019 HM conference in London, um, where the pieces, some of the contributions were discussed. And since then we thought, okay, let, let's try and publish this and, and get some more people on board uh, into the journal. And uh, and it's been a really great journey to be on. And uh, I'm just really proud and excited to be now seeing it in print and, uh, and seeing it as a full issue. So yeah, I'm gonna try and basically give a one-on-one intro on, on uh, what is political Marxism and, and um, you know, how it tackles some of the key questions that I guess some of our listeners will be interested in and, and the kind of stuff that we try and promote through our work. Um, and I'm going to try and tackle this a bit um, uh, through thinking about well, what is capitalism, basically, how do political Marxists tackle that kind of big question. Um, and, you know, uh, a good way to start this is to say, well, um, capitalism is not just about greedy profit making. Right. It's it's a complex system. Um, it's a uh, it's about the social reproduction of human beings, their survival, um, which is based on the production of goods and services for profit, obviously, but also on the production of labor power. Right. As a commodity. So the work that we all do. And to survive on a very, very basic level, and this is kind of a bit how I introduce all this to my students, right? Human beings have to work, they have to offer themselves on the job market so as to get money and buy goods uh, and services, etc., from other markets. So market dependence uh, is essential. And here we come to kind of a key point about political Marxism that, especially in its early days, was used to, to uh, differentiate it from other Marxisms, I guess. Um, and not only market dependence uh, is essential for uh, capitalism to set itself in place, but it's actually imperative, right? So if people can get food, if they can trade, if they can uh, survive by other means through access to a market, then in, in a sense, we're not in a purely or dominantly capitalist system, right? Um, so there's something unique about capitalism and the whole point, or I guess, of political Marxism was to intervene in the kind of 80s, from kind of late 80s onwards, to try and establish well, what is unique about this system. It's not something that's always been there. It's not a natural and inevitable process. It's something that, you know, has specific historical origins um, and that we have to do the tough historical work of really pinning down what those origins are, right? So uh, that unique system requires a dispossession of peoples from their common means of survival, uh, their separation from the means of production, right, which is what Marx obviously started from, but more specifically, uh, what political Marxists will then uh, try and look at is the specific political and economic processes through which that dispossession occurred, right. Uh, so Robert Brenner and Ellen Wood are kind of been uh, associated as the founders of political Marxism. It's not a label they chose. They actually didn't really like it, but it was given to them by an opponent in the debates they were having at the time, Guy Bois, and it stuck, and it's kind of, for better or worse, uh, with us. Um, 
So, uh, you know, um, obviously there are many other things we could say about what is capitalism and, and, and its origins. And I'm not going to go into a kind of really long uh, history about that. And maybe we can come back to some of these uh, elements later on in our discussion. But I guess what's important for political Marxists is to not assume that this system is a given, that it's fixed and that it just drops out of the sky. It's a contested process. It's a process that's politically constituted and contested. Um, and uh, we need to think about what it is and to explain it uh, in relation to what they saw as very problematic um, uh, fallacies or, 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 or movements in the Marxism of the post-World uh, War II period. So um, the issues of economic determinism and issues of structuralism, right? So two big debates that political Marxism kind of uh, sets itself um, up as trying to get rid of uh, in the 80s. And so these two issues of structuralism and economic determinism uh, led um, Robert Brenner, but also Ellen Wood, uh, more theoretically, to kind of lay out a, a different approach that use different concepts to some extent. Uh, we'll talk about social relations of production, for example, um, social social property relations, uh, as you know, as opposed to social relations of production, um, as a key Marx, political Marxist concepts. And uh, so some, some key themes that Alan Wood worked on, uh, so the separation of the political and economic, the relationship between base and superstructure, uh, the mode of production, uh, what it means to take a kind of practical theoretical stance. Um, Ellen Wood was a very uh, prolific writer and uh, she, she wrote on all sorts of topics and, and issues and uh, she really tried to kind of make all this stuff more accessible and, uh, and to think more practically about all of these issues while being very rigorous historically and theoretically. So, um, so there's an aim in political Marxism to come back to history, to come back to specificity, to locate the origins of capitalism in a particular context, um, and to basically focus on uh, social property relations as an ensemble of social relations, right, as a whole, and not just as this political economic relationship. Um, so that's been a really key starting point. And I guess to kind of try and introduce a bit the symposium and, and hopefully bring in uh, other people in here now is to think of um, where the debate is at today. And the symposium was an idea of, you know, talking about new debates in political Marxism, where we've got to up to now, uh, what's the new work being written on these issues. Uh, and, and there's a debate going on now about how still structuralist maybe some of the political Marxist work is. So we have Ben Oteshka and Sam Nafo, who wrote an article uh, a couple, a few years ago, saying that basically Brenner and Wood were had structuralist elements in their thought, and that was being reproduced through um, the work of those who took on the concept of rules of reproduction. So we'll try and maybe explain that a bit later. Um, so some people in the debate are saying rules of reproduction are a key concept, we need to stick to it. There are structural elements to the reproduction of capitalism that we need to, to explain and hold on to. Whereas on the other side, Sam uh, Nafo and Ben Oteshka and to some extent others uh, take on a more radical historicist perspective and they say, well, basically, we need to really try and rid ourselves of any structural methods in our approach to um, the analysis of capitalism. Thanks for that. Uh, Javier, do you want to um, give us your contribution, please? 
Yeah, I'll just pick it up uh, from where Maya left off, I think. Um, so basically, uh, Sam Lafo and Ben Oteshka's um, argument in the symposium is that political Marxism has become uh, less political and more structural over time, um, so to speak. Which is to say that uh, since the Brenner thesis, political Marxism has lost a certain uh, sensitivity towards historical analysis. And their claim is that political Marxism has come to look uh, at history through abstract theoretical models and generic structural patterns uh, at the expense of examining how history uh, is shaped by institutional contexts and the outcomes of, of social conflict, right? So for them, uh, you know, by doing this, political Marxism has given up uh, the its original focus on concrete analysis of social property relations and instead uh, you know, has come to rely on vacuous uh, structural generalities and they cite the concept of, of market dependence uh, as an example of, of these, like, um, you know, vacuous generalities. So now I've, I have followed this debate um, pretty much since the beginning, uh, not quite as Maya, but almost there. And, and uh, you know, I've seen it play out in, in success, successive HM conferences and, and other events. And uh, and of course, uh, Nathan Teshke mentored me into political Marxism. So so this debate has been uh, uh, quite formative for my way of thinking about political Marxism. Uh, however, over the years, I think I've um, come to see the debate as stuck in an unhelpful place. And uh, and I think that part of the problem is how Nathan Teshke themselves decided to formulate their critique. Of, uh, of contemporary political Marxism, right? Which, which I think now needs some, some qualification. So basically this is what, what I try to do uh, with my article in the symposium to sort of try to reformulate the, uh, the terms of the debate and, and sort of frame the discussion slightly differently in, in ways that I think are more productive. So my contribution basically makes uh, three points. Uh, the first point is that um, I agree that there is an, an epistemic um, uh, divide in political Marxism, but that it is not, I think it's not as extreme as Nafo and Teshke uh, make it out to be, right? Uh, I also think it's not about the tired question of, of structure and agency, um, which is how they frame it, but rather it is about historical method, right? So I think that the question that they're really raising is about how we should approach and theorize uh, historical patterns without falling into some sort of ahistorical determinism, right? So for me, the divide within political Marxism is is then not so much between structuralism and historicism, but between two different kinds of historicism. I think that is a more accurate way of putting it. So what are these two kinds of, of historicism? Well, on the one hand, there is a historicism that is indeed more structural, if you will, because it focuses on explaining how multiple uh, different historical phenomena are united by common underlying structural pressures, right? So in that sense, it is more structural, fine. Um, now, on the other hand, there is uh, an institutional historicism is how I call it in, in the paper. And, uh, and this kind of historicism is more focused on how context-specific institutions refract broad structural pressures into divergent historical outcomes, right? 
So in a sense, you could see it as a, as a matter of different uh, emphasis on, on what they are trying to explain. I think a quite important thing to, to bear in mind is that the divide between these two historicisms is not really an insurmountable uh, gulf, but rather an epistemic spectrum. And I think that most political Marxists could be plotted somewhere along uh, the, the spectrum between structural and institutional historicism. Now, most political Marxists are probably somewhere in between, um, but Napo and Teshke um, are on the far end of the institutional wing of the spectrum. And I think that this explains their heightened perception of the divide, but also why so many respondents in the symposium have uh, denied that the divide exists to begin with. So that was the first thing to keep in mind. And my second point uh, was that Nafonteshka's radical historicism is, is therefore not taking the tradition back to its origins, to its historicist roots, as they claim, but rather it is charting a new ground on political Marxism's uh, institutional extreme. And their drive to do so, I, I think, uh, has more to do with their own intellectual development than with the evolution of political Marxism, right? So Teshka's work is on geopolitics and uh, Nafo's work is on finance. And by contrast, much of political Marxism is about production. Now, finance and geopolitics are obviously related to capitalist production, but the relationship um, can be quite oblique sometimes. So the existence of a market imperative to increase productivity does not always hold clear answers about these phenomena, about why finance evolves in a particular way or about how, uh, you know, geopolitical strategies develop in a, in a particular direction. Um, so I think that, you know, given that the role of production and productivity doesn't always hold a clear answer for their own work, they've come to downplay the importance of, of concepts like these in, in, in the political Marxist uh, framework. Um, yeah, and then finally, the third point uh, for Nafo and Teshke, the, the concept of market dependence is at the root of uh, political Marxism's deterministic relapse. And um, it, their claim is that it has become a shortcut to explain a lot of things by, by reference um, of, a, of a, something as, as generic as, as market dependence, which is the structural pressure to engage in market exchange for survival, right? So their claim is that you know, there's just so much that you can explain with something as broad as, as that, right? Um, however, I mean, I, I would agree with that, broadly speaking. I, I'm quite critical of the concept of market dependence. I've, I've written about this. However, I'm, I'm quite wary of um, the methodological suggestions that uh, Nafo and Teshke have come to, to suggest as an alternative. So they, they're essentially... The way I see it, uh, calling for dissolving political Marxism's conceptual framework into a sort of genealogy of uh, productivity of an, uh, productivity enhancing practices, right? Of tracing these lineages of of uh, institutional diffusion, and uh, and I think that that could be quite problematic, right? So I I agree that um, that market dependence has a lot of problems, and I would welcome a more concrete, practical focus. But um, I just don't think that, um, you know, reducing political Marxism to a sort of simple analysis of institutional diffusion is the solution, right? Why? Because um, the spread of productivity enhancing practices under capitalism is contingent, as, as Nafo and Teshke point out, but it is also not random, 
right? Um, the modern drive to increase the productivity of labor would be unintelligible without a historically unprecedented sense of imperative, right? Of you need to competitively increase output or perish. Uh, so this reality would be flattened out if we got rid of concepts like market dependence or the market imperative in favor of, of an analysis of, of institutional genealogies. And, uh, and this is why, even though I'm critical of these concepts, I still think that um, they remain absolutely central to, to political Marxism and Marxism more, more broadly. Why not? Rob, uh, do you want to give us your uh, counterpoints? Well, it's not it's not so much a counterpoint. It's kind of a response to some of what Maya has said and then hopefully like a setup for the, the broader discussion. And obviously, I, I'm aware that I've been given the most dangerous task of all of these things. And I'm going to have an angry mob of political Marxists chasing me down the street with flaming torches after this. But the idea is essentially just to give a kind of overview of some of the criticisms that have been made of political Marxism as an intellectual project and then think through a little bit kind of like why they're there and why they're at. So I think one thing that we ought to mention right at the outset, and it's already become clear from what both Maya and Javi have said, is that to speak of political Marxism at times is a problem because in some ways it's a relatively heterogeneous movement of people who bear some loose resemblance or allegiance to Bob Brenner, but who go off in very different directions. So even someone like Ellen Woods, I think we can in many respects differentiate her from some of the stuff that Bob Brenner would say. And of course, like, Nafo and Teshki, again, is a, is a whole different like kettle of fish. So I'm going to talk at a relatively like fuzzy level just to give through some of those examples. And then hopefully in, in, in our ensuing discussion, we can, we, can, we can work some of that out. So I wanted to basically think of like two different ways that we could come at this. Like first, the kind of historical transition debate stuff. And then secondly, more conceptual questions. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into the historical debates because I assume that anyone listening to me just talk about history for like however long will like jump off a cliff or something like that. So we'll just be very quick about it. Um, one of the major things that I think that has come out in kind of recent engagements with political Marxism is how it relates to critiques of Eurocentrism and to the kind of the tradition. Because of course, one of the crucial arguments that Brenner is making is to do with the kind of geographical and geospatial origins of capitalism. And it's important to say, right, that when we think back to Brenner, one thing he's doing is arguing with Dobb, but another big thing that he does right early on is argue very strongly with like Wallerstein and with Gunderfrank. And he wants to say, no, no, against you guys who have an expansive idea of like a, of a capitalism which grows out of what he calls commercialization and therefore outside of Europe, he is insisting much more about social property relations inside particularly of England. And so obviously, a lot of more recent work and earlier work too has contested this and has sought to try and draw attention back to Europe's expansion into the kind of its non-European peripheries and the role of kind of non-European social formations in contributing to and maintaining capitalist social relations. So that's one kind of big historical critique which has come out. And we can think of, you know, world systems theory, Alex Nyavis's and Ms. Kangolu's uh, recent work, all of which is contributing to that. So... A second kind of big thing that has come up very often is around this historical idea of, of market dependence. And obviously, one of the core arguments that is made 
in the kind of political Marxist tradition is that this market dependence is crucial in explaining the transition of like you know peasants into workers and, and something that a lot of people have argued Neil Davidson argued it a lot is this idea that actually that maybe overstates the case and that actually many people involved in agrarian work peasants or whatever voluntarily chose to enter into market relations not out of market dependence or out of kind of some dull economic compulsion but because nobody wants to be a peasant it's really bad like you don't want to do it so that would be another kind of historical critique and then obviously there's a kind of blurring of the historical and conceptual critique, which is to do with to what degree does something like commercialization, merchants capital, and how that works out in other social formations not contribute to a kind of capitalist thing. So those are three, I think, broad historical critiques which are important, and they link importantly with I think some broader theoretical points, which I think link back to what Maya and Javi have both said. So the first thing is, and of course we don't want to get into this too much, is this idea about what capitalism is, right? Now, of course, that can become an incredibly inane and boring debate about semantics, but it is obviously politically important for us to understand where capitalism came from, where it's going, and if we think about what it is, what's its logic. So Charlie Post often refers to political Marxism as capital-centric Marxism, right? That's his his uh, kind of like, don't insult me, I'm going to call it this instead thing. And what you know, one of the issues that we might raise about that is that insofar as political Marxism is centered on capital, I would argue it's primarily centered on capitalism volume one, capital volume one, and less so volumes two and three, because two and three really widen out and broaden out Marx's idea about what capitalism is a totality. Labor, the direct relationship between labor and capital drops out to some degree when we get into stuff about average rates of profits, redistribution, the role of finance, and all this kind of thing. And crucially, and this comes back to the market dependence point, what we also see as a crucial element in Marx's understanding of capitalism is intercapitalist competition as one of the major things which compels productivity. So Javi was just saying, like, well, market dependence and labor productivity, how does that work? And of course, Marx's argument is because capitalists compete with each other, that is a kind of pressure and the whip, which is what generates this drive for labor productivity. So not simply the relationship between labor and capital or that, but actually the relationship of these competing capitals. And that is where you get this one of more like circular thing whereby the profit point comes back in more strongly because it's this combination of competition and of course labor and the search for profit which is what pushing it it that way so that's that's kind of one thing now i think that then comes back into this idea about well how is it that we um determine or work out like what's what's capitalist so one thing that my said that i thought was interesting right is like she talks about this idea of of purely capitalist, but of course, what people would push back on is to say, well, what does that what does that really mean, right? Like, at least in Marx's understanding, he always understood capitalism as this kind of like hobble, like pushed together, weird, contradictory social formation with the, the the continual search for profit via capital accumulation at the forefront and other things drawn into it. And really importantly, right, one of the key things that you get out of reading Marx and other things like that is that the relationship between non-capitalist or pre-capitalist social formations and capitalism is not straightforward and not simple. Very often things that we think of as not being capitalist social relations, when they're drawn into a world market, which is, has the, the profit motive at the core of it, they can un- end up being captured within the logic of capital and contributing towards that. That's also really important because, of course, the thing is capitalists are strictly indifferent from where various things come from. So an interesting thing that Marx says in like volume, you know, volume two, I think, is that, well, it's complicated to talk about slavery because slavery was so inserted into the capitalist world market that it began to be governed to some degree by the rhythms and logic of that world market. And of course, the capitalists 
they didn't really care if it was produced by slaves or produced by anyone else, they just wanted it as an input into their profit-making practices. So there was that thing going on. That's sometimes addressed under the rubric of un uneven income by development, but I hate uneven income by development, so I'm not going to talk about that. Um, so then the other question then is this role of coercion. And this is partly where I, where I would maybe to some degree draw a line between Ellen Mason's Wood and Robert Brenner. Because Mason's Woods formulation of the separation of the political and the economic, and this idea that what capitalism is marked by is forms of economic compulsion as opposed to direct coercion, is in some sense, like, I think a distillation of what Brenner says, but he never formulates it quite so boldly as that. Now, I think that that is a real problem, that particular formulation, for several reasons. So firstly, it's very straightforward if you look at, like, actually existing capitalism, and I think we all agree it's capitalism, that coercion continues to play an absolutely central role in labor processes and in forms of accumulation. And again, capitalists are pretty indifferent as to whether or not they're using violence or not. I mean, if you, for instance, would like read Ashok's work on like what happens in um in garment factories and all these kind of things, you cannot understand what's going on in, in terms of relations of labor without direct forms of state coercion intervening in processes of like production and reproduction in ways that we have to take seriously to understand contemporary capitalism. And if we go back to the history of capitalism, of course, and this is where the kind of dispute over the Eurocentrism thing might come in, capital accumulation has always been associated with pretty forms of pretty direct forms of violent coercion continually throughout capitalism's existence. So what does that say about a definition of capitalism which insists upon this separation if we see it coming here? And that also then I think brings us in this broader question. And again, this is something that's interestingly addressed in this in, in the symposium we want, might want to think about is, well, what does this mean about the role of the state? Because of course the state has been absolutely central to processes of capital accumulation. And not always in, just in this kind of standoffish way, but very often directly and violently intervening in order to guarantee and maintain relations of capitalist accumulation, right? So all of this to me comes out most significantly in the question of what, political Marxism says about imperialism. So Ellen Mason's Woods writes her book on imperialism, which I do not like <laughs> very much at all. And part of the big problem with that is that she wants to distinguish between capitalist imperialism proper and these pre-capitalist modes of imperialism. And she wants to do that by saying capitalist imperialism proper is based on non-coercive, non-direct non coercion. It's based on market relations. And pre-capitalist imperialism isn't. I've got to say, a look at the kind of, like, firstly, the historical Marxist tradition of thinking about of imperialism, but also at the historical record, it starts to look very strange that, like, the major emergent capitalist powers combined that with direct forms of coercion and intervention. So Wood looks at the British Empire and she talks about how Ireland is the example of capitalist um, imperialism because it, you know, transformed the social relations in land, but then says, well, but not Indian colonialism. This, I think, becomes a problem because it's like, well, why is this such a significant part of these states going on, right? This becomes even more significant when we think that, okay, she argues essentially that post-45 is when you get capitalist imperialism proper. But if you look at what all of the major capitalist powers were saying about their colonies post-45, they weren't like, hey-ho, it's time to do some lovely capitalist imperialism. They were like, we are going to fight tooth and nail to maintain our hold on these territories until we basically get forced by the combined action of the national liberation movement and the Soviet Union. So if we're saying that that's part of the logic of capitalism, that separation, we need an explanation for why actually existing powerful capitalist states weren't willing to do that. 
The kind of exception people might make is in, in relation to the United States. But that's not even true because so many projects of US accumulation were articulated through direct forms of violent coercion. If you just look at the relationship to the United States in Latin America and the Caribbean, this was a combination of these kind of more benign forms with direct military interventions. And we see that today, right? So if we look, we can trace in various contexts the way in which violent imperialist coercion isn't running counter to projects of capitalist accumulation. It's actually central to them. And part of the important thing about that, and then like I'll, I'll wrap up for a second, but part of the important thing about that is that this is also where intercapitalist competition comes back in, right? Because one of the reasons that we see so much military coercion is because capitalists, in alliance with their states, are often in competition with other capitalist powers because capitalism is not smooth like that, which does tend to say that I would say to talk about the separation of political and economic in this context misses something. So finally, and then I just, the final point I want to make, and this is, this I think is more of a thing to think about than anything else, is that one of the things that has been very absent from a lot of political Marxist debates is what the relationship between other articulations of oppression and class are, right? So how does capitalism relate to race and racism? How does it relate to like sexism, gender, like issues of gender, um, issues of like ableism and all this, all these kind of things. Now, there's a very, I think, bad formulation by Anna Mason's Wood, who is basically like, hey, look, class is the only significant thing that you couldn't get rid of in relation to capitalism and everything else is not necessary to it. I don't think that that's a very good formulation. And I think that it runs against the grain of what a lot of, I think, interesting Marxist work is saying about how the ways in which the logic of capital accumulation and capitalism are tied into the generation of these forms of of, of um of oppression in these categories. And there's been some attempt to to think that through, right? Like Charlie Post like jumps out as a person that's trying to do this on on race and racism. But that that's largely not being done. And it all then has to be, I think, rooted back in this idea of that particular mode of like um you know how the surplus is extracted, which is it which is useful, but I think does then miss out on the kind of broader social reproductive processes and other processes which go up in making up capitalism outside of that so i think that's that would be then to me what some of the kind of core themes that i have seen and thought about in relation to these kind of critiques of political marxism and i think the symposium in some ways is actually going on to address those kind of questions too and i think that's something that you know is an important thing for us to talk about and think about great thank you rob for that um so we can start having a bit more of a kind of open general discussion now so um anyone feel free to 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 chip in as well um i guess the first question i think we should address and rob you've been alluded to alluding to to kind of part of the answer to this i think in what you were just saying but is is to start with this provocative quote from neil davidson who um who you know um i think we're not uh i'm not exaggerating by saying that he's very critical of of this tradition he's saying um he he basically labeled political marxism as academic sectarianism detached from any socialist practice um, so the question from somebody like him might have been, well, these are all, it's all well and good. These debates are interesting. They're interesting uh, from an academic point of view. You know, if you work in a university, what is the kind of uh, political purchase they have today? So what do they mean for socialist practice, for, um, for the kind of struggles, social struggles that, uh, that are important today? Do they have any importance or is it is this just a purely academic debate? And then there's a secondary question, which is, is that a problem? But 
Um, firstly, do they have it? it? What do they have to say? You know, I mean, I have so much respect for Neil's work uh, and uh, historically and, and, and politically, etc. But I think that that quote is a bit unfair, um, to say the least. Um, so, and, uh, you know, I think there's a bit of tongue in cheek and, and Neil was, you know, very close friends with people uh, in political Marxism. And, and so, it, you know, it, it was one of these healthy debates. And this is something that we also try and, and raise a bit in the symposium that, you know, you we can disagree quite fundamentally on, on some of these semantic and what could be quite sectarian issues, actually. But but broadly, we're, you know, we're, we're on the same uh, we're, we're on the same team. Right. So um, I think, OK, of course, aspects of this are uh, academic more than they are practical. But, or, or, you know, why do I think political Marxism is uh, still crucial for practical political questions. Um, you know, it's at its core, it tells us that capitalism is uh, inherently um, uh, contingent in many ways, right? It is not uh, an inevitable process. And I know that seems like a simple point, but it's a point that even among Marxists, we have to repeat constantly, right? And it, this will relate back to issues that Rob was saying about uh, Eurocentrism, but also trade and commerce and, and, and a lot of the work today, which is not often not Marxist on uh, commodities, uh, you know, the, the specific retracing the history of modernity and of uh, the last few hundred years through specific commodities or looking at very specific uh, uh, processes uh, across various empires uh, and you know there's been great work on this but it's also been work that's been quite um, theoretically weak in actually telling us the specificities of, of what capitalism is and there's something about being um, about being able to pinpoint specific mechanisms and the specific role of the state and various institutions other than the kind of the usual suspects in reproducing uh, problematic mechanisms uh, and, and various forms of oppression to also come back to some of the things that, that Rob was saying. So, you know, on a very basic practical level, political Marxism says that, you know, this is not a system that is uh, uh, everywhere and in a way it rejoins what rob was saying about you know that, that capitalism is constantly in flux it's con constantly contested there are various processes inside capitalism that are not necessarily capitalist and it englobes those processes and we tend to have this very then homogenous approach to it which is problematic and i and i think i read the work of political marxists as trying to, to fight against that in many ways uh, uh and to not have this kind of idea that everything that be, that is capitalist is necessarily therefore of the same a source and, and, and agency. So, um, you know, there's something there about just accepting that uh, capitalism is not going to stay and, and let's hope anyway, and that transitions are happening on an everyday uh, level to some extent, and that it is possible to be much more specific about them. So, you know, that's kind of taking the, the discussion more in the terms of the future but uh but i think it's there as well there is that to come back to what uh, javi was saying about methodology right and to move away a bit uh i think a lot of what's in the symposium agrees with what rob was saying and a lot of the problems you know the whole point is that saying that the work of ellen wood and, and robert benner was problematic in many ways you know it was groundbreaking but it, it also <laughs> said a lot of problematic things it, it simplified a lot of issues especially you know to, 
kind of large scale analysis of imperialism. I mean, the book on empire is tiny, right, Rob? So it's, you know, there's so much we could pick out of that that is problematic and, and people have. Um, so, so it's about moving away from that and have taking the discussion on a methodological terrain, which, you know, and allows us to bring in a much more rich array of analysis of, of how capitalism uh, expanded in various locales and contexts. Um, so yeah, I've, uh, I'll, I'll come back on other specific points uh, later, because there's, there's so much of, you know, rich and, and interesting points to come back to here. All right. Uh so firstly, I think that there's not a straight line that you can ever trace between intellectual production and political action. If we look at the history of the Marxist tradition, things that you might not have thought would be important politically have turned out to be incredibly important politically. So I don't think that you can make a critique that, that goes in that way. Secondly, at the point in the kind of historical cycle of resistance in which we're in, at least in like, you know, the advanced capitalist countries, that is basically what everyone is doing. No one is like Lenin producing theoretical work, which is instantly informing revolutionary practice. Like most people's political practice is 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 far and away from the grand historical practices that we would think of of the socialist and communist movements. And so I just think that to say that particularly about political Marxism is a bit weird when you could literally say about everyone who you're friends with, um, essentially. Um, the third point, and I think this is the important point, is that actually you can see several kind of concrete political like payoffs alongside the ones that Maya has already said from what political Marxism brings to you. And you can see this from the kind of political practices that many of the people involved in political Marxism have been about. And this is for good or for ill. So the first thing is, at least classically, People like Brenner and others have said, look, a core part of socialist politics, because of how we understand like social property relations, is a focus on the workplace as an agency and a site of struggle, because we understand that to be one of the core defining features of capitalism. And lots of people who are political Marxists are also people who are like, well, we need to recenter the workplace as a site of political action. The second thing is, again, very specifically, um, in terms of the critique of Neo-Smithian Marxism that someone like Brenner was talking about, that was a direct political intervention. It was a direct political intervention against Gunder Frank and Emmanuel Wallerstein, people who were literally formulating political positions and programs for the Third Worldist movement. So this was a direct political intervention with direct implications. I don't agree with those implications, but you can't deny that they are, in fact, political implications of the project. So alongside the kind of, I think, important things that Maya has identified, although I think you don't need to do political Marxism to think that capitalism is, is contingent, but I, I take that point, there are quite concrete political positions that come out of the intellectual positions taken. And finally, look, Marx, the whole, one of the important things about the Marxist tradition as opposed to a generic tradition in the workers' movement is the importance of being self-reflexive about the social relations in which you find themselves, because without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. So the, the simple project of seeking to understand capitalism, how it works and what it does, always has the potential to be political and has always been a core part of a Marxist political program. And I don't think that you can wipe that off. Of course, the social location of people doing that work in universities makes us all depressed and sad, but that does not automatically undermine the possibility of the fact that understanding capitalism is important for any political action. Thanks, Rob. Harvey, you've been itching to respond. To what extent does political Marxism inform political activity? I mean, I think as Rob, you yourself were pointing out, right? Uh, to what extent does, I don't know, value theory, Marxist, you know, new reading, uh, things like that, you know, to what extent do they inform uh, socialist strategy or, or something like that? I don't know. Um, 
can you can you do that like in the in a in a context in which it's not revolutionary right like to what extent do do we have an expectation that marxist theory should be directly informing revolutionary activity right it's i don't know if it if that's something a bit it's a, it's a bit too much to ask for perhaps in in the context that, that we're living i i will say though that i don't know if um broad Marxist theoretical traditions are supposed to have a direct link with practice. I think that in the case of political Marxism, the way I see it, right, everyone that I know that that works within this tradition is involved in some some form of political activity, but it sort of creates the space for people to to use the theory in very different ways, right? Like I know, you know, there's obviously uh, people from uh, some of the main figures of political Marxism have been related to uh, you know, different strands of the Trotskyist movement, but then there's also like the left communists that I know of, that I know of anarchists that use political Marxism to inform their, their practices. So I think it's quite diverse. I don't, I wouldn't expect, um, you know, the, the, the narrative that political Marxism has of capitalism to sort of correlate directly with any specific um, political sect if you will. But it, it is precisely for that reason that the accusation that political Marxism is sectarian that I find that like sort of puzzling, right? Because um, I, I'm not really sure what is sectarian about political Marxism. You know, is it just that it disagrees with uh, even a combined development? I mean, because that's just a disagreement. You know what I mean? Like there is nothing, you know, there's nothing comparable to a Marxist sect in that sense. Uh, so I, I just don't quite understand the the criticism of, of sectarianism. I think when when Neil Davidson made it, um, as Maya was pointing out, I think it was more of a tongue-in-cheek comment, and I don't think he really expanded much much on it. So I wouldn't like focus too much on that. Um, should I move on to conceptual issues? Or yep. Okay, so I think uh, Rob has done an excellent job in lining up the main criticisms of, of political Marxism, and I think he's really hitting on on some some really crucial issues. Um, however, political Marxists themselves have also been inquiring on, the, on these same issues, right? And sometimes when we look at these criticisms, we always do it from the outside and not take into account the work that political Marxists themselves have been doing to work through these, these problems, which are indeed very much, very much real, right? So, okay, so for example, um, the question of market dependence, right? That, was one of the things you started. I mean, that's just a massive point of contention within political Marxism, right? The Brenner-Wood debate on the, the Dutch transition was about the concept of market dependence. I've written about this. I don't think it's it's helpful uh, to use it as like a as a way to to disentangle transitions to capitalism, for example. And it's precisely uh, for the reason that you're pointing out and that Neil Davidson was raising, which is that, you know, economic actors before capitalism voluntarily engaged in market exchange, and that sometimes subsumed them in conditions of, of dependence. Therefore, market dependence is, is not particularly helpful to, to sort of like trace transitions to capitalism, even though it is necess a necessary element of capitalism nevertheless, right? Now, the way that Brenner formulated it originally, it meant that um, it was, I suppose, trying to juxtapose uh, conditions of subsistence farming with um, with sort of uh, an imperative to introduce capital using and labor saving methods in agriculture and saying that the more that peasants sort of became, started producing for the market, the more they, um, they sort of became sucked into the spiral in which they had to invest more uh, capital and, and save more labor and therefore 
that sort of like set in motion a, a dynamic of, of capitalist economic development. And I think that's just not true. You know, I think that I would say probably most political Marxists, at least those who are working on uh, questions of transition to capitalism, you know, will recognize that it, you know, market dependence is just simply insufficient to explain the story. Because when you look at it, uh, you know, subsistence farming is a well-known misnomer, right? Um, peasants that have been in possession of the means of production have engaged in market exchange and have been dependent on commercial exchange to various degrees for thousands of years. I would say that is the historical norm in the Eurasian continent, at least. And um, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, peasants who were family farmers, but they had to buy, I don't know, seeds, pay rents, uh, you know, hire people for the harvest, something like that. Now, if you cannot meet these payments, you might lose your your land. That could happen, right? So they were there were conditions of market dependence before capitalism came about, granted. So that is clear. To me, it's the market imperative that is more determinant, right? And now the market imperative can only happen in conditions of market dependence, right? But it, it is the imperative. And it's the imperative to systematically increase the productivity of labor or be driven out of business, essentially. So it's that sort of like social standard of productivity that, that market competition imposes on the producer. Uh, so I think that's probably where most political Marxists are at this point, but um, maybe I'm talking a bit too much for others. There is the uh, the question about uh, competition that you were raising as well. Well, I, I don't see that as a criticism of political Marxism because that is precisely what political Marxism says, right? That is that it's not just a matter of relations of exploitation of capital and, and, and labor as sort of like, um, you know, vertical relationship of capital exploiting labor. It It is the imperative to compete on the market that drives the compulsion to increase productivity. And that that has always been at the heart of political Marxism. So I don't just see that as a contradiction at all. In fact, uh, Brenner calls this a, a horizontal relation, right? It's not just vertical class relations, it's horizontal class relations. And if anything, I think Brenner probably pr privileges the horizontal aspect even more than the, than the vertical one. So just something to keep in mind. Uh, the idea that capitalism is made up of contradictory social formations uh, with you know different modes of production, just an assemblage of, of different institutions uh, unevenly that you know they're, they're held together haphazardly. To me, that is, you know, I think political Marxism is better than other uh, Marxist traditions at understanding that. So I would refute uh, the idea that that political Marxism just can't can't deal with with these sort of contradictions. I mean, when you look at something like, for example, world systems theory, right? Sometimes it's really hard for people in that tradition to look at capitalism as anything less than a global totality, right? They tend to look at a social formation through the prism of geopolitical dynamics, but often without taking into account the domestic dynamics of, a, of that social formation, um, you know, in detail, right? So to me, and, it, and often the, it gets really hard to sort of say things like, okay, well, you know, maybe slavery was fundamental for the growth of British capitalism. But you can question whether slavery itself was operating according to a capitalist logic, right? For someone working in that tradition, that is just all one thing and the same, it's really hard to, you know, that that very question might seem really hard to, to even grapple with. Like, of course, it's just a capitalist world system. There's nothing less, nothing more. But, but then when you're looking at the transition to capitalism, it is self-evident that capitalism didn't come about, you know, 
at once everywhere the same, right? It's an, it unfolded unevenly in a contradictory manner. It spread in, in different ways in different places. And that's something that political Marxism and its focus on social property relations tries to take uh, seriously. Now, the idea that social different social forms that may not uh, take the form of the capital labor relation, once they become drawn into the world market can take the form of capitalism. I also do not see that as a contradiction with where political Marxism is at at the moment, right? Um, sometimes political Marxism gets um, gets caricatured a little bit uh, by saying that we only focus about, you know, it's all about wage labor. It's all about the rise of wage labor. It's just simply not true. I mean, when you look at the Brenner thesis, the Brenner thesis is about how peasants who were in possession of the means of production, right, family farmers, started competing with one another for leases of land. And that's what set in train capitalist development. And when you look at, at the work of Brenner and Wood, their argument is that, you know, a mass proletariat was a consequence of this dynamic rather than the precondition that, that made it happen, right? That in fact, these early farmers didn't even employ much wage labor. And in fact, uh, if you look at uh, the history of wage labor, you'll find instances of it on a mass scale in, uh, in the Roman Empire, for example, that's, that's not capitalism, you know, but capitalism does bring about mass proletarianization. It is a consequence of it. And, uh, and some might say, although not everyone would argue within political Marxism, that wage labor is perhaps the form of exploitation that is most conducive towards productivity increases, hence its importance, but it's not the only one, right? Um, and I'll just give you another example. Slavery, for example, is a debate within political Marxism whether U.S. slavery was capitalist or not. Right? Not everyone argues on, and not everyone agrees. Sorry, on that issue. So um, Charles Post, notably, thinks that the U.S. plantations in the 19th century were not capitalist, and that the U.S. Civil War was essentially a, a war between modes of production. But then, most recently, someone like John Clegg has made the opposite case that actually. Insofar, there was a liquid market for slaves. Um, you know, the 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 capitalist in charge of a plantation was increasing the productivity of labor, just as any other capitalist uh, would have done. So John Clegg comes from political Marxism and is making a case that U.S. plantations were indeed a form of capitalism. So as you can see, like you know, you can take the the tradition in many different directions. There is no one clear cut um, answer to these questions. It's just that political Marxists take the history seriously and then they sort of like draw conclusions accordingly. I think that's the, the only thing. Cool. Thanks, Avi. Um, uh, Svenny, did you want to uh, say something about um, what you had in mind? Yeah. About, like, concern? Um, yeah, I wanted to um, maybe uh, make one point, but first I wanted to say um, that I've, um, you know, I was a bit resistant to join because I said to you, Ashok, before I'm, you know, I'm really not a political uh, a Marxist. And um, so, um, you know, take the comments I make as that. But also I'm kind of I'm glad I joined after all, because I think I just now understood something that happened to me when I first came to political Marxist literature and coming at it from a kind of question of like on the like on the conceptual uh, 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 or in the conceptual realm, I was interested in a question of how do we think politics in a materialist, in a Marxist materialist sense. And I came to the work and I didn't find an answer and I left again. And I think now 
I, I have two kind of explanations of that. One is that the capital-centric Marxism label that Post gave to parts of it is what I think I looked at and what I found, um, and which is maybe also, um, um, you know, one of my broader questions is a little bit, um, don't we need to center uh, kind of, and in that sense, I have uh, quite a lot of sympathy with Nafo and Teshke, don't we need to se center um questions of institution and questions of the state i mean that what like heide gerstenberger also raised in the in the symposium wouldn't we need to center that more as also problems in and of themselves that we cannot necessarily always explain um through these kinds of overarching logics that we've now um talked about quite a lot so i can understand um uh, why i now felt I didn't quite get what I came for, but I also can see that maybe I had to look at other parts of political Marxism in order to find um, the answer to my question. And maybe I will do that um, uh, later on. But what I wanted to speak to was kind of Neil Davidson's provocation. And I um, wanted to do that by coming back a little bit to the initial um, contribution to the symposium that um, Nafra and Teshke made, um, because to me, as an outsider, it read not just as a kind of polemic within political Marxism, but it read also as a contribution on the very question of Marxist method, of the materialist method. Um, and I, 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 I liked how in the introduction, Maya, you kind of um, pulled that out and suggested that maybe one of the questions they are asking all of us is how do we consciously develop our conceptual apparatuses um, and how do we actually um, kind of um, own up to the methodological commitments that we make often implicitly in our work. Um, and for Nafo and Teshke, it seems to me that their concern is very much with this question of systematicity. So what is a, or what can be a systematic relation between theory and history? Um, um, and more broadly, this kind of issue of, issue of how we deal with overcoming liberal or autonomous accounts of political logics on the one side and economic logics of the other. And I don't think that's a unique problem to political Marxism. I think that's a problem for kind of all Marxists who want to, in, in one sense, work on questions of politics or ideology uh, uh, from a historical materialist uh, uh, method. And it seems to me that, um, and, you know, I'm quite enjoying what Neil Davidson maybe calls um, sectarianist or non-political, but I think we need to have these kinds of debates about method. And um, it seems to me that the difficulty that Navo and Teshke kind of um, uh, work through in their account um, and this demand, you know, where they come to a demand for a return to historicism in the end, um, might be actually an, an expression of something that um, is a difficulty for historical or Marxist materialism in general. And maybe it speaks to the fact that, um, and I want to kind of maybe polemically suggest that Marxist materialism is possibly as a method an impossible place to inhabit. Um, precisely because, um, at least to me, I think it doesn't allow for a systematic answer to their question. Um, so we cannot, I think, find a once and for all answer to the question, where should we stand between history and structure? Because we will always fall into idealism, um, especially if we present it as an antinomy, as a kind of you know, antinomial relationship between the two. Um, and 
my kind of resolution that I would uh, uh, um, uh, propose, and I will kind of betray some Althusserian roots here, maybe, but I think what we need to do is we need to submit this very question always again and again to the conjuncture. Um, and I think our answer can only in a way be a speculative one rather than a systematic one um, around this question um, of the relation between history and class struggle on the one side and structure on the other. Um, and because I think they are very Kantian in their um, in, in their initial text that gave rise to the symposium um, in this kind of demand. And then in the response, they write, um, we should have more faith in our political judgment um, than to rely on abstract rules as our moral compass. And I think that's exactly what they don't want. Like, I think that's exactly what they problematize in the initial uh, 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 proposition. So... In one sense, I'm saying something that is very old. I'm saying we need to be more speculative in our um, appreciation of the uh, of the problem of a of a Marxist method and of these kinds of decisions because I don't think they are they are polar, um, and I also don't think that we um, can make them outside of situating ourselves within the analysis of a very specific conjuncture where the question of structure and the question of, of history um, and class struggle um, will come into a specific relationship between them. And I, and I, I, will, I will stop um, by just kind of raising something else that I found um, a, a really interesting question. And again, Maya, it's something you raised and I don't know, you know, you might have raised it in passing, but I uh, found it really interesting. You said, is it maybe part of our capitalist reason to wanting um, to to always hang on to a kind of, or or to let ourselves be derailed into too much of a structuralist account of things? Um, and again, I th you know, I think this is... Uh, uh, a methodological question it's an epistemological question as well as an ontological question a little bit um uh, namely how does our um account of historical development how do we understand ourselves as objects rather than subjects of this theorizing um and also how does it relate to questions of ontology namely what the the very ontology of a capitalist society or capitalist societies is and in that sense javier i'm kind of maybe also taking a little bit because you said um it's an epistemological question i don't know actually i wonder you know whether we don't need to kind of confront an ontological question about um um, how how we uh, uh, you know or whether we need to at least be open whether we can make an ontological statement about the development of capitalism and the relationship to kind of a contradictory or dialectical uh, um, development so that was just um, something something I, I I would maybe like throw back to Neil Davidson and kind of maybe say this is something that um, is very valuable um, in the way it's it's been raised in a somewhat abstract manner in this um, initial text um, of the symposium. And I guess one answer, and that's maybe an answer some of you gave earlier, is that, well, political Marxism itself was a polemical gesture, right? And very often, I think our answer, our methodological answers or decisions are polemical ones because we think the stick has been bent too far, too far into economic determinism, too far into structuralism. So we want to bend the stick back. And again, it's only a polemical. So I think this question of can we inhabit the space of method um, other than as a polemical, in a polemical way, or is that something we should embrace um, is a really interesting question. The, the, um, symposium raised for me. Um, 
Yeah, and maybe I don't know. Can I give? Can I throw one question to Javier? Um, because one um, or to all of you actually it doesn't have. To, but that came came out to me from reading your contribution um, around the long dominance of capitalism. So I was wondering um, these kinds of shifts within political Marxism, or you know that Nafu and Teshka are diagnosing in a way and problematizing. Isn't there a way that we need also an account of what this the long dominance of capitalism that we have experienced until today has that or does that have to have an effect on our theorizing um, and on our kind of positioning? Um, and has that maybe had an effect on Brenner um, in the way that Nafu and Teshke presented as a theoretical problem? But is, is that also maybe a response to... Um, how Brenner himself maybe uh, um, um, understands the effects that the structure of capitalism has had. Um, so that, yeah, I think it's a question to all of you. I don't know why. Thanks, Vanya. Um, I'm going to uh, ask Maya to respond and then Harvey. Thanks. Oh, and, and yeah, especially Svenja, that, that was really good. Um, and I'm going to try and kind of uh, speak to some of the points you were making and going through them at the same time in my head that, you know, to try and 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 have you as great in, in giving some really specific uh, points there about um, recent PM work and 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 what's you know the debates and and questions that people um, in this tradition have been tackling. But I, I, you know, my role a bit in the symposium was to try and look at the bigger picture and to, to try and also be a bit of an outsider in the way that Svenja uh, has been doing here and. You know, my way of looking at it is like, well, what does political Marxism bring to us, right? We're, we're all, you know, starting from the same point. We're trying to understand what the hell is going on in the world. We're trying to understand how we can get out of capitalism. Um, what does political Marxism bring me? It tells me it's that comparative work, a specific kind of comparative work, is really important to how we go about analysing these things. And that's a methodological choice. Right. And that any Marxist enterprise, any Marxist project, research project is a, a, a question of choices, of compromises. Right. And you're never going to get the whole picture. You're not gonna, never going to be able to, uh, to you know, present everything that's going on as much as it is the theory that tries to do that the most. And that's why we love it. Right. We want this thing to explain everything. But the point is um, uh, that, you know, we're going to have to make some of these choices and the choices that political Marxism, I guess, helped me make is, you know, focusing on specific uh, aspects of the transition in specific contexts, specific aspects of uh, uh, what happened in England, which were really key to understand what was not happening in other contexts, right? So Brenner wrote his thesis in relation to uh, other uh, parts of Western Europe and Eastern Europe as well, right? Why were lords in France, in Eastern Europe, not responding the same way as they were in England? And that's the key question, right? What was specific to England for these specific things to happen there differently to where they happened anywhere else, right? So what we need to do today is do something similar. And if you look at all the work um, that's happening on commercial capitalism, for example, right? Uh, Jairus Banaji's work, and, and that is, you know, a kind of stark contrast to, I guess, some of the political Marxist arguments. Uh, and this idea that some of which uh, Rob was raising about uh, trade and, and commercialization, uh, and this focus on circulation, 
right? And that capitalism emerged in loads of different places and loads of different pockets because uh, wage labour did exist in other contexts before it existed in England, of course, right? If they were putting out systems, they were manufacturers, uh, they were, uh, you know, art, um, a small kind of bosses that were working in ways that were uh, 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 forcing producers in specific ways. However, those were not generalised. Right. And, and if we take a view of capitalism that focuses on just these various little instances everywhere, we have a very different picture. And, and that if you want to do that, that's fine. That, that's a choice. But you have to be uh, uh, um, uh, honest about what then consequences those methodological choices have for the way in which you, you, you analyze history on a larger scale. Right. And it's that's I guess the point I'm making is that it's not about the fight of who's going to win, you know, who who knows exactly how it happened. It's about being honest about the choices that you that you're making historically and, and what that entails and, 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 and being um, and tracing that development in your work. Right. So, you know, I'm interested in, for example, legal aspects of these transitions and, and, and other pre-capitalist and, and capitalist processes and focusing on actors that have been ignored in political Marxism and other aspects of Marxism. And that, you know, helps to give us a richer picture of different things going on. So, uh, so, you know, that's a bit uh, links a little bit back to what I think. Svenja was saying about method, about needing to do more work. So coming back to the interesting work by Bernardi, uh, uh, um, uh, Lali Khalili, uh, um, Adam Hanyeh today, looking at logistics, looking at maritime factors, a work by Collas and Campling that's just come out on capitalism and the sea. You know, all this stuff needs to be discussed, compared, you know, contrasted to the stuff that's coming out with political Marxism. These are not separate traditions, right? We do need to work together and do more comparative work of how these things compare and that's you know what i would like the future to look like and to think of all these different aspects of circulation and production and why we've been separating them and how empirically i think we agree on many points that's the joke of it right uh, and collas and campling make that point to some extent that this juncture is much more analytical than empirical and our work is to kind of go back to the empirical links there between these different histories of capitalism uh, the other point I just want to make that links back to Svenja's uh, uh, commentary is on subjectivity, right? That's the elephant in the room here. We talk about agency uh, in the symposium a lot and each piece. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I think what we're not discussing and we're not discussing enough in political Marxism is subjectivity at a, at a very conceptual level, epistemological level, but also at a quite practical, concrete level. And that speaks to how these, um, sorry, Rob's points about forms of oppression, right? Uh, and different ways in which forms of freedom and unfreedom and labor, uh, but also, you know, other forms of capitalist subjectivity uh, and how they influence our, our issues of method. So that I think is definitely something that um, that we need to, to bring more to the table and think of agency in, in richer ways. You know, again, it's agency structure debate, which is creating more problems than it's solving, right? Javi, do you want to respond to what uh, Svenja said? Thanks, Maya. I think that the debate about the origins of capitalism is not really just a, uh, an antiquarian issue about sort of like getting the, you know, the, the details of, of what, you know, peasants did, you know, in, in medieval Europe or, or something like that, right? It's, um, uh, you know, the, the question of when capitalism came about is simultaneously the question of what capitalism itself is, right? And that is fundamental for not just political Marxism, but any kind of Marxism. Uh, so... 
the truth is that many people within and without Marxism, they take what capitalism is for granted, right? They think it means money, it means trade, it means markets, uh, it means greed, maybe. And, um, and they reduce it to these things, which have existed long before capitalism, right? And, and now, um, if you're a Marxist, I think you need to take seriously Marx's uh, um, uh, principle that, that capitalism is a, a historically specific uh, society, that it has a specific origin, and therefore it potentially has an end as well, right? If you cannot locate where capitalism began or are not interested in that question, or if you cannot distinguish capitalism from non-capitalism, you're essentially uh, surrendering that, that issue, right? And, and you kind of end up defaulting in a, in a sort of view of capitalism that is quite transhistorical. And, uh, and eventually you become subsumed into liberal historiography. I'm sorry, right? Like, because if, if capitalism is essentially an extension of trade, of age-old practices, then why start in 1492, for example, which would be the, you know, the Brenner's critique of, of, uh, of Wallerstein, right? The Spanish Empire had a massive head start from England when it comes to plunder, when it comes to, you know, genocide, when it comes to like stealing, you know, all, all this stuff and establishing a, a global commercial empire. Yet, you know, was Spain like the, the sort of cutting edge of economic modernization? I mean, when you look at uh, peasant productivity in Spain in 1910, it was the same it was in the late Roman Empire, right? Uh, you can't really sort of make that um make these claims and, and then sort of not follow through with the with the logical conclusion and i think this speaks to maya's um argument about about making choices i think that if you just shrug off the question and you default to the idea that capitalism is about money and, and markets and, and trade uh like wallerstein does or like banaji i think does as well at some point you will find yourself locating the origin of capitalism further back in time and this is something that i see in banaji's work for example Initially, I don't think he, he would have done this, but in his latest book, you know, he, he takes it further back and back. You know, now the Islamic uh, societies of the Middle Ages were capitalist. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about, uh, in, in other stuff I've read about Roman capitalism, for example. Um, and I, I just, I don't know why stop there, right? Like Max Weber saw the origin of capitalism in Babylon, uh, you know, literal Babylon, not the metaphoric Babylon, but... Um, I just don't think, you know, that sort of dissolves the historical specificity of of capitalism into any form of sedentary society that has some form of trade, right? And Gunder Frank himself took this to the logical conclusion. He said that the modern world system was four or 5,000 years old, right? If that is capitalism, it becomes really hard to imagine how to escape it or to overthrow it, right? Because it, it's essentially the the same thing as as urban sedentary civilization uh so that speaks to to the choices now i i do think that it's not just a conceptual choice it, it's also about explaining modern economic development right so when we look at the increases in the productivity of labor that we have witnessed in the last two centuries they are completely historically unprecedented right they have changed almost everything that we know about human society we've gone from peasant societies to proletarian societies with mass urbanization with mass commercialization and uh, you can't just flatten that out. And if you choose to see capitalism as purely an extension of trade, that is what happens, essentially. Thanks, Avi. Um, I'm going to ask Rob to respond, but I just wanted to say on Rob's um, original contribution, 
uh, some of the things that you highlighted were around uh, Wood's intervention in in um, around uh, imperialism, capitalist imperialism. But I think that it's, and then you also made reference to sort of uneven combined de- development and also like Alex Nevis's work and his intervention. But Nevis doesn't actually uh, doesn't actually um, it, to me isn't really a a direct assault on Brenner's thesis on transition. He's actually just, in lots of ways, expanding the scope of it. He's saying, okay, well, what are the contributing global contributing factors to, say, demographic decline or any number of different commercial opportunities and so on and so forth. So in some ways, it's like trying to build estuaries to Brenner's original thesis. And so in some ways, it's not necessarily a kind of uh, intervention in the way that I think that would undermine that thesis. If anything, it's sort of global, like historicizing it, but also expanding it more geographically. And on top of that, you know, when you make the, the question about uh, a Woods intervention later on um, around imperialism, is it to say, and I'm, I'm curious, I guess this is for everyone, but specifically Rob, uh, is it to say that Brenner's original intervention inevitably leads to Woods' conclusions around imperialism? Or is there, is, is, is it interpretive? Is it, is it that... This is, I mean, it is the case that lots of people who are supporters of political Marxism do sort of vacillate around that question of, of imperialism and have similar takes on it. But I, I wanted to hear what you had to say about that. So on Alex and Yavez, I think that will be news to him. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he would be like, oh, great point. I'm extending the tributaries of Robert Brennan. I think he would fairly wholeheartedly disagree with that point. Um we can say what, what that means or not. I mean, look, there's a question, but this is what I'm also talking about, about context and the Gunder Frank stuff and the Wallerstein stuff. Like, in part, Brenner is very specifically insisting on the geographical location of, of capital. I don't think it's as separable as you think. Like, he could be right or he could be wrong, but I don't... That's one thing. And then the other thing is, look, we can get to a point where it just turns out everyone secretly agrees with each other because, like, if we nuance everything enough, it just turns out that they agree with each other. It's not good podcasting, but also um, I actually just don't think that that necessarily accurately captures what it is that we're we're trying to we're trying to trying to say here. So I wanted to come a little bit back in that front to what Harvey was saying, and that it links in a little bit with Maya. So one thing that you said, and I, I get this when you started talking about the expanded research program of political Marxism, you just said, "Oh, we do good history and then we follow the history." Everyone fucking says that. Like that is what no one no one is like. I've done some really bad history in order to prove my point, do they? Like everyone who would be criticized by political Marxists would defend their historical account. The thing would be, there's no such thing as good history in that sense, because it's a methodological question. It's like, well, what do you bring to the study of history in what way? Because equally, so you say like, you said, oh, these people might fall, fall foul of being liberal, like liberal historiography. I'm, I would say, if you say you're just doing good history, that's the most liberal sounding historiography I've ever heard in my life. Like that's what every liberal says. So I don't, I, now I think my, so this is why I think firstly about why we have to take seriously these debates about stuff like rules, rules of reproduction and stuff like this. These weren't added extras for like Brenner on top of his good historical research. This was him attempting to work through what he thought um, a Marxism would look like in a certain kind of context. And it's important to consider on that front, right? we don't talk about that much anymore, that like Brenner was part of the analytical Marxist circle. And a lot of what he was doing there was trying to work through, but not as terribly as most analytical Marxists, because he actually had political commitments, how he could take some of the kind of claims that Marxists make and translate them into that kind of analytical Marxist language. 
So the reason I think that's important, right, is I just don't think it's good enough for someone to say we're following the history or it's good history. No, everyone will say that. It's just it. Instead, it's about, as Maya said, the methodological and I think importantly on that political choices that you make. And this is what is, I think, distinct, the, the distinctive thing about Marxism and what I would talk, I would think of as the Marxist method is the move from the abstract to the concrete and then back again, right? Where it's, Marx builds up a, a unity of a number of historical determinations in such ways to formulate a set of abstract conceptions of capitalism and then brings them back down to earth in that way. That, to me, is what we can think of as like a distinctively Marxist method, right? And the way that Marx does his kind of intellectual production and so I think I don't and in that sense I don't disagree but almost what I'm hearing from you is I'm like well what does it even mean to talk about political Marxism then if if you can essentially depart from like what I would have understood and a lot of people would have understood as like the central analytical insights of the political Marxist tradition at what point and, and in which case that honestly that's not a problem like that's fine but that that then comes into what we're what we're getting into right where it's like well what what do we mean by what and what do we mean by what this, by the way, I guess is one of my, and this then this comes back to my, um, this is this is my particular take on um, the the Nafo and Teshki thing. One of my questions always with with the kind of work that they're doing that's agent centered is, and I don't mean this in a sectarian way. I just think it's a genuine question. Like, what is at stake in you calling this Marxist anymore? Like, I don't quite. I've always I've always had a like I've always been like okay if we're talking about. An aident- a, a contingent agential agent agent centered. I'm not going to say agential. Like account of the ways in which there are these contingent developments and this kind of stuff. I, I'm like, you don't you don't have to like you don't have to call it Marxism. Like it it feels quite distant from like what a lot of the Marxist tradition says. So I mean, the other thing then is like is the, I think coming back into this then is like what are in a sense the politics of demarcating a tradition and what are the sense of um of naming a tradition and what does that mean and then just on what Ashok said about imperialism I don't know man like it's it, you, it's hard to see what's an ineluctable development from anything else right but obviously there is a definite part of the Marxist tradition which in, encloses imperialist, imperialist relations as intrinsic to capitalist social relations and intrinsic to the survival of capitalist social relations in a way which, at least the way that some of Brenner's work goes, seems inimical. I'm not saying it definitely is, because it's not necessarily definitely that, but it is to say like the, the wood thing is at least a possible derivation from the assumptions of Brenner and also in part with all of this stuff, I think it's important for us to say in any of this, like, I don't think the stakes are about saying, like, whose fault is it? That That's not what's interesting. The stakes are, like, what is, what is, what is yielded analytically and what does that tell us about, like, the world? And that, I guess, then, this is my last point, just in relation to something that Maya said. I, I think, look, the, the, the important thing is, is, like, you know, we need that balance of necessity and contingency because the whole thing, as I understand it, about one of the huge contributions that Marx makes to the socialist movement in general is to say, no, 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 this isn't just about you deciding that you can change this and then like, there's going to be red lemonade in the seas. It's like capitalism has a logic. It has an internal logic. Like, And you need to understand that logic to know where capitalism is weak and where it is strong. And your political action needs to not just be like 
random, 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 but to have an understanding of where an intervention might go. So if we don't have some understanding of necessity, or I would like say like the logic of how capitalism works, we lose our map of where we're politically effective. Great. Thank you, Rob. Um, so before we end, we could just do a final round if anyone wants to say a few final words, either on the symposium or on some of the questions raised, anything that hasn't been addressed. Yeah, okay, I'll go first. Uh, thanks, uh, 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 Rob, and, and have you as well here. Um, okay, what I want to respond to uh, very briefly uh, to close off uh, is one maybe uh, idea for how to kind of speak to what Rob is saying. Let's not let's not just fall into this, uh, you know, bland and neutral. Uh, we all agree at the end of the day uh, type scenario. Obviously, I, I don't want to kind of uh, fall into that. So you know, okay. So specifically about the rules of reproduction, um, post uh, and La France and, and and those who kind of follow that line. So uh, uh, Smolik and and, and Evans, uh, uh, to, you know believe in the rules of reproduction because, and then Post puts it quite well, and I think he got it this from Brenner, you've got to be able to distinguish between changes of a system and changes within a system, okay? And that, you know, that's a really neat way to try and say, okay, yeah, we okay, everything is agency-led, and, and obviously PM, political Marxism is about agency primarily, but ne nevertheless, some, uh, you know, capitalism is so specific that we need to know you know, what gets reproduced, what are these rules, you know, what are the changes uh, of system that we need to, to, to look out for, right? Um, and I would say, you know, my position on this would be, well, let's think of it maybe in terms of expansion and origin. And when we look at the origin of capitalism, those rules, those setups, that methodology is going to be different to then if we think about expansion. And a lot of the work today that we've been talking about in terms of trade and circulation is about expansion. It's not necessarily about origin. And those two things get conflated. And I think if we are better at distinguishing whether we're talking about the expansion of capitalism or, you know, specific locales and, 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 and changes within, then uh, we'll be better set up. Also, it depends, you know, if we're talking pre-capitalism, it's so complex, the various uh, juridical, political, religious, cultural relations that are going on there that we have to have different ways of looking at it than we do now. Today, we have different challenges, right? It's not simpler today, but they're different. So uh, that was just that point. The other very quick point is about uh, just mentioning uh, P Pedro Segaldo's work in a symposium and, and Jessica Evans' work, which really try and push forward the, the boundaries here in terms of thinking of settler colonialism, of different forms of labor, migrant labor, uh, 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 different forms of indentured labor, how that complicates the stories of origin and expansion in different contexts. Uh, and uh, uh, Salgado's work on decolonial theory and issues of Eurocentrism, which I think will be really useful to take these debates forward i will use my finishing remarks to respond to rob who called me a liberal uh so i just want to clarify a number of things so um i am not saying that it's just about getting the history right all i do is good history man and, and just like obviously i'm obviously not saying that so i just want to leave that out clear right what i meant was that if political marxists say that capitalism started in England is not because they have an a priori commitment to make England this sort of exceptionalist uh, case, uh, some kind of like civilizational cradle, you know what I mean? Like they start from the premise that there was, you know, something unprecedented, a rupture in the logic of production and productivity that is visible, that is 
you know, you can actually trace in, in the case of English agriculture and then spreads into industry in the form of the Industrial Revolution, that we need to single out England as, as a case to be explained, right? Now, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we have a commitment to making England special, right? Brenner himself, where he is at right now, is that England, the Netherlands and Japan had parallel transitions in the early modern period. So clearly, what I'm saying is that it's the empiric sort of, you know, guide the, the path and then political Marxism adapts to to that, which is not to say that it can just be reduced to the empirics, right? But it's a more historicist project than other sections of, of Marxism in that if you want to dispute political Marxism, you're probably, you know, you'll probably um, be in a better terrain if you take it to the empirical realm, you know, because that can really destabilize sections of the narrative. If you just say, well, like Banaji does, for example, well, you know, there was trade in, in the Islamic uh, Middle Ages that, you know, it's kind of, we'll just shrug it off. It's just, okay, fine, whatever. That doesn't really address the question, the theoretical question, I mean. Um, and the same thing could be said about, you know, the exclusion of, I don't know, the the, the colonialism in the emergence of, of capitalism, right? Like it's not, it's not just because, just because like political Marxists want to exclude the experience of non-European peoples. It's because, there were many European powers that were engaged in colonialism in different forms of imperialism, and they produced divergent outcomes, right? I, I'll go back to the Spanish case. You see what I mean? Like how, you know, if colonialism is the, the a sufficient cause to explain the rise of capitalism, why did Spain not become the first capitalist or industrial capitalist nation? Or, you know, you could argue the same thing about France, although I, I know that people feel differently about the French case. Um, so I and having said that, I don't think that the case, uh, the role of colonialism and empire, is inimical to the Brenner thesis. I I really don't don't think that's the case. So I'll just clarify one thing about political Marxism, which is that it is evident that the English that English capitalism emerged in the context of a larger trading system and would have not emerged without it. So I'll just say that, and you know you can quote me on that, because I, I'm not actually saying this. This is. Ellen Wood in The Origin of Capitalism, textual line. I have it written down here, you know, prepared for my notes. So it is evident that we are aware of that, you know. No one in political Marxism is saying that trade did not matter, commercial systems, colonialism, plunder, no one is saying that. It's just a matter of it being insufficient to explain a historical rupture. You see what I mean? So that is, uh, that's really the, the, the issue here. Now, you might say, well, you know, Saying that, uh, um, you know, that, that colonialism contributed to the, the growth of English capitalism is insufficient, um, you know, because colonial slavery was also a form of capitalism. Well, I mean, you can say that, right? But, um, you know, that Eric Williams, who was within the dependency tradition, agreed with that statement that, you know, he would have said that, uh, you know, plantation slavery in the Caribbean was fundamental to the story of English capitalism in the metropole, but nevertheless, uh, that form of slavery cannot be, you know, cannot be really uh, seen as capitalist per se. So, in that sense, uh, um, the idea that that some of the arguments of uh, the dependency tradition and the Brenner thesis are inimical is not, you know, I, I would dispute that. I, I really don't think that's the case. It's a bit of a caricature, it seems to me. And also, I'm not a liberal. All right, Rob, do you want to give us the last bits? I didn't call you a liberal. I said that's a thing that liberals say. I just needed you to clarify. I like whatever. You're not a liberal. Like it's just the 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 statement. I'm just following the history. 
is a liberal statement par excellence. That's all I mean. Great. So uh, on that note, I think we can uh, we can say thank you to well, first of all, to the listeners. Hopefully, you enjoyed this first uh, historical materialism podcast and learned something about political Marxism. Thanks very much to our guests, to Maya, to Rob, to Svenja, and to Javier for their excellent contributions and insights. And uh, yeah, so subscribe to the podcast, uh, read the articles on the website, subscribe to the HM Journal, and, and follow us on Twitter. And uh, if you want to have any questions, you can slide into our DMs at, at HistMat on Twitter. Our next journal, 29.4, is out in December. And so we'll speak to you then.